Hello, and welcome to Hope Church. We're a local church with chill style, real faith, and no perfect people allowed. Thanks for checking out our podcast. This is a message from our SoCal location in the Santa Cruz, California area. We hope this message is encouraging. If you live near either of our locations, we'd love to have you join us for one of our many Sunday services. I was <laughs> just sitting there like, oh, cool, sweet video. Man, Savannah and the band were on fire this morning, huh? Holy moly. Marcel was giving us a clinic in bass playing this morning. Whew, that was good. Well, uh, good morning. How are you guys doing? Doing all right? Good. We're, uh, so if you've been here with us uh, the last couple weeks, we're in a series where we're, we're looking at the book of Job. The series is called Scars because we're looking at the book of Job and, and, and what it has to say about the scars that we carry from the, the wounds and the, the pain that we've experienced in life. We all have scars, right? If you've lived a little bit, you have a, a few scars. I got a scar right here on my arm. We're not actually talking about physical scars, but, but I have a physical scar right here. It's the only scar I have on my whole body, and I have it right here, and I cut myself with a box cutter. I went to the hospital. I was so excited. I was like, 12 years old. I was so excited because I was like, this is it. This is going to be my scar story. I went and we sat down and the, the nurse takes it like that with it stuck in my arm. She takes it out and she looks and she goes, well, we're going to stitch this up. I'm like, stitches, this is amazing, you know. I'm not very adventurous, so I thought this would, you know, this would be pretty cool. She gave me one stitch. I've had one stitch my whole life. Yeah, not a very exciting story. So we all have scars, though, right? We've ex- if you've experienced life, you've experienced suffering on some level. And certainly suffering exists on a, a spectrum, right? I mean, some, we probably all know people that have suffered more than us, and maybe some that have suffered less than us. We've all experienced some measure of it. And Job, the book of Job, it's complicated. It does speak to this. And it ignores it. And then it speaks to this and then it ignores it. It's, it's a complex book. Here's the deal. I love the book of Job. In fact, if I'm being honest, it's actually my favorite book of Scripture. In fact, it's my favorite piece of literature, so I'm really excited to be talking about it. I'm actually a little bit nervous because I, I, this morning I was thinking about it, and I go, okay, I'm going to give myself five minutes to just geek out with you, in front of you, on the book of Job, and then I'm going to call it, and then we're going to have to move on because I'm so excited about this book. I, when I was in middle school, I first discovered the book of Job. So when I was about... You know, I was actually in high school, I was about your age, Ruby, and I started reading the book of Job, and I discovered it was bizarre. It's full of weird creatures, and strange poetry, and God speaking out of a whirlwind, and um, it was fantastic. And I began to study this book, and I, it's the first book of the Bible I, I really I genuinely studied, and I became fascinated by it, and I've returned to it my whole life. Job chapter 38 is probably my favorite piece of scripture in the whole Bible. And we're going to actually read from that today. I got lucky enough to, I, I picked that, or I didn't pick it, it picked me uh, in this series. So I'm really excited about it. So, all right, ready? Five minutes, geek out on the book of Job. Here it is. Job is utterly unique in all of the scriptures. There is nothing like it. There's nothing even close to the book of Job in, in, the, in the scriptures or in any other of the ancient writings. It's poetry, but not prophecy. It's from the wisdom of, literature, tradition, but there's not a single proverb in the whole book. It's old. It's ancient. In fact, it's so old that it's written in a language that historians call Paleo-Hebrew. 
There's, there's, over, uh, there's over 15 words in the book of Job that don't appear anywhere else in the Bible. In fact, don't appear anywhere else in any ancient literature. It's old. It's really old. There's no Jews in the whole story. There's no Israelites anywhere to be seen. They're not even mentioned. There's no holy land. There's no temples. There's no places that you're familiar with from the other scriptures. It take, takes place in the land of Uz. Yeah, I never heard that either. Uz. Nobody else talks about the land of Uz. It was a real place. It was east of the River Jordan, but it's not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. It takes place somewhere after Abraham, but long before Moses. So think about this. Job had no Scripture. There was no written Scripture. In fact, Job is one of the only books in the Bible that does not refer to other Scripture because there was no Scripture when Job was alive. Job knew God. He was a God follower. In fact, Ezekiel mentions Job and Noah and Daniel as being uh, all God followers of the same caliber, meaning people that pursued God with their whole heart. We know Job was a historical person because he's mentioned outside of Scripture. The story of Job is actually very well known in ancient literature. Uh, Not all the stories refer to him as Job, but it's clear it's the same person, a, a person of great wealth, great affluence, probably royal, most people with the name Job in ancient times were uh, royal uh, royalty of some kind, princes or dukes, or not dukes, princes, kings, that kind of thing. Someone who had all of this stuff, everything you could acquire in life, and then had it all stripped away, and then had it redeemed at a later point. So he was a real historical person. Think about this. For Job, there was no hope of resurrection. I mean, think about your life. When you think about as bad as it's ever gotten in your life, At least you have the hope that someday, someday, someday you'll be resurrected with Jesus, right? That was not a concept that existed when Job was alive. He he didn't have that hope. He only had maybe, possibly, a murky picture of the afterlife. Um, There was no concept of heaven or hell for Job. He was just a God follower. Job is an ancient folktale, but it also contains real history. Here's what Victor Hugo said about the book of Job. Uh, famous author, tomorrow, if all literature was to be destroyed and it was left to me to retain one work only, I should save Job. This is Alfred Lord Tennyson. He said it's, he called Job the greatest poem, whether of ancient or modern literature. And Daniel Webster, you might be familiar with Daniel. He's, uh, what did he do? Dictionary, right? Yeah, Daniel Webster, uh, famous author as well. The book of Job taken as a mere work of literary genius, he says, is one of the most wonderful productions of any age or any language. So a lot of fans of Job out there. There's good reason why it's, it's a fantastic book. So here's how it breaks down. Wait, am I five minutes up? No, I got 30 seconds left. All right. Here's how it breaks down. The first two chapters are a narrative prologue, okay? So the author of Job, who we don't know, we don't know who it is, nobody knows, the, the author of Job writes the first two chapters as kind of a narrative prologue, and he's setting us up for where we need to go. To, to hear, he's preparing us to hear these, these poems. There's two poems, okay? And the author, he uses kind of this courtroom-style motif, all right? So uh, Tim talked about this a little bit in his series, and Danny touched on it too. There's this courtroom mo- motif where God is kind of in a court, and there's these people, we don't know who they are, but these sons of God kind of coming out and going in, and one of them comes in, and he's called the accuser. Now, in English, we translate this as Satan, but that's actually a recent translation. In, in, in ancient times, they just referred to it as the accuser. This Hebrew word, shatan, which means accuser or one who posed, 22 times it appears in the Old Testament. 
And only two of those is it talking about a spiritual being. Usually it's some, like, like if Joe and I were having an argument and he had uh, one view and I had another, I was opposed to his view, that would be shatan, to be opposed. So this person stands in God's court and is opposed to God's view of who Job is and why he follows him. Right? So that's the first two chapters. And then you've got chapters 3 through 37 are this, this dialogue between Job and his friends. So that first, the first two chapters set us up to get there. It's kind of like, have you ever read the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis? Have you ever read that? This is my copy of the Screwtape Letters. It's a really old. I like this one because it's really old. This was from 1950. The book was written during World War II. And the Screwtape Letters, uh, C.S. Lewis writes this. It's a... Uh, <clears throat> it's a, a uh, dialogue between two demons talking about a person, and it takes place in World War II. And C.S. Lewis didn't expect that we would believe that this happened. It's, it's, the, it, it frames a deeper concept. He's drawing out these important truths come through, the, and that's what the narrator is doing here. He's setting us up to go somewhere really important. And the important thing is this dialogue between Job and his friends. There's three friends, and then there's a fourth that shows up at the end, Elihu. And then there's the monologue. That's what I'm going to talk about today, the monologue. The monologue is where God addresses everything that came before. This is chapters 38 through 41, right? The dialogue of the three friends and Job, it re represents the pinnacle, the height of Near Eastern wisdom for the time. It, and it basically amounts to this. Let me sum it up. So all of, this, all, all of these chapters of back and forth, they're basically summed up like this. And this might sound familiar to you because because this is common belief now. God will do good things for you if you're a good person. If you're a good person. If you do good things, you live a good life, right? We know people with this philosophy. If I'm a good person. I do good things. I'm honest. So God will do good things for me because he has to. Because that's just fair, right? If you're a bad person, if you do bad things, then God will punish you. Because that's fair. Because he has to. Because that's what's right, right? These friends of Job, they believe that God runs his universe on the principle of strict recompense. That means you do good, good happens to you. If you do bad, bad happens to you. So, of course, when they see these awful things that have, that have happened to Job, they say, there must be some sin in your life. You must have done something to offend God, right? Of course. That's the only reason these things would happen. Does, any, does anyone see a problem with this view? Does anyone see the problem with this view? Anyone? What's the problem? What's the problem with this view? That would be good, yep. It doesn't always happen. That's right. It doesn't always happen. Here's the problem. It says right in the book, in the beginning of the book of Job, God states, the narrator says that God states, Job is innocent. He's an upright and blameless man. How many upright and blameless people do you know? Right? Job was a unicorn. This man was upright and blameless before God, right? And he suffered like probably no one in this room has suffered. That's the problem with this view. It's a problem. It feels like it should be true, doesn't it? If you've ever been watching a movie and you're in the second act of a three-act movie and the good guys are on the ropes, you know, it looks like the bad guys are going to pull it off. But you know the movie's not over, right? You know it. Why? Because that's not what happens. The bad guy gets what he deserves, right? Usually he dies. Well, no, 
my all-time favorite film saga, the Star Wars uh, saga of films. Of course, most people will say, especially film buffs, they'll say their favorite movie is Empire Strikes Back, right? Empire Strikes Back. And I, I don't want to offend you, but my favorite movie is The Return of the Jedi, okay? Because the good guys win. Bad guys get what they deserve. You know, at the end of Empire Strikes Back, this is, I don't want to spoil it, but I'm, by now you should have seen it, okay? Uh, so at the end of Empire Strikes Back, Han Solo is frozen in carbonite. He's whisked away by Boba Fett to meet his grisly fate at the hands of Jabba the Hutt. And you've got Luke Skywalker has had his arm chopped off, right? He's got a mechanical thing on it, you know? And they just, they're standing at the space window and they're looking, and that's the end. The credits roll up. That's the whole thing. And for some people, they go, ah, oh, it's my favorite film. It's not over, though. You watch that movie and you go, what happens next, right? Because somewhere deep down, we all believe in this, this kind of justice that if, if we just do good things, God will bless us. And if we're careful not to do bad things, God won't punish us. But that's not reflective of what the reality that we live in. It's a problem, you guys. It's a problem. In fact, I'm going to say this. It's the oldest philosophical problem in the world. Job is the oldest piece of literature. So it makes sense that it would deal with the oldest philosophical problem in the world. And here's the problem. How can God be all good and all powerful? How can that be true? People have wrestled with this, from, from Epicurus, the Greek philosopher, to Richard Dawkins, the modern atheist. People have wrestled with this. Here's a quote from Epicurus, in fact, the, the Greek philosopher. Here's what Epicurus had to say about it. He said, is God willing but not able? Then he's not omnipotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent, which means evil. If he is both able and willing, then where does evil come from? Did he create evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why would we call him God? It's a problem. It's a problem. And this is what the author of Job wants us to deal with and struggle with and wrestle with. Okay, this might be a good place now to hear from God, right? Let's hear what God has to say on the matter, okay? So we're going to pick up in Job chapter 38, verse 1. All right, and I'm just going to read Job 38, verse 1 through 21. We'll have it up on the screen. You can read along with me. I'm going to read it to you. Now, did you guys ever see that Tom Cruise movie, Jack Reacher? The first one, Jack Reacher, right? He just plays a tough guy, typical Tom Cruise movie. You know, there's a, there's a scene in the movie where he provokes these guys into a, 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 a brawl, and they go outside in the alley behind a bar to fight. And there's six of them and one of him. And, you know, they point it out. They go, hey, they're... Why are you so confident? I mean, besides you're Tom Cruise, but why are you so confident? There's six of us and one of you. And he goes, no, there's only three of you. He goes, they go, well, you can't do math. There's six of us. And he goes, no. First, I'm going to beat the, the ringleader. Then there might be two wingmen that are loyal enough to stick around. The rest of you will run away. So it's one on three, right? Very, very Tom Cruise line. And, of course, that's exactly what happens. The ringleader comes at him. You know, he dislocates his shoulder, destroys his knee, punches him in the groin, you know. And, and here's Tom Cruise's line. He goes, he looks at the others, he goes, now we know who's who, right? This is, this opening salvo of God's monologue is him letting us know who's who, okay? You ready? It's tough. This is some tough stuff. You ready? Here we go. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of storm. Have you ever wondered why God often speaks out of storms? Have you ever wondered about that? It kind of happens a lot, doesn't it? 
Yes. Yeah, it gets our attention. Cyclones, tornadoes, storms. These are, these are destructive events that seem to have no purpose except destruction. And yet God comes along outside and from within them. And he uses those things to his purposes in ways that we rarely understand. I wonder if there's something he's trying to tell us there. Here's what he says. The Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. And he said this. Who is this? that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked out its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set, and who laid its cornerstone? You know, last year, my wife and I, we bought a, a house. We bought a piece of property. And you know what's weird is it's actually really difficult to find out where your property line is. I've talked to five people from the county. I've looked at maps. I've the, the home disclosures, all these different things. And no one can tell me exactly where my property line is. They told me, you have to spend $2,000 and get a surveyor to come out with this fancy equipment, put up cameras and do this whole thing, and lay out for one tiny piece of property in Soquel, in Santa Cruz County, in California. United States on the face of the earth. It takes all of that effort. And God laid out the lines of the universe. Not just our solar system, not our galaxy, the universe. Were you there? On what were its footings set? Or who laid the cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy, who shut up the sea behind its doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds in its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no farther, here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? The earth takes shape like clay under a seal. Its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their light and their upraised arm is broken. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the depth of the deep? Have you? Have you done those things? Have, have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the deepest darkness? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Stop me if you've heard this one, he says. What is the way to the abode of light? Where is light kept? And where does darkness reside? Can you take them to their places? Do you know the paths to their dwellings? Surely you know. Surely you know. For you were already born, right? You were there. Weren't you there? I don't remember seeing you there. You've lived so many years, right? God's answer to the question of how can he be both all good and all powerful is, is essentially... Who do you think you are? Were you there when I laid the foundations of the world? Now, there is an answer to this question, Mike. I know you're wondering, is there an intellectual kind of a philosophical answer to this question? And yes, I'm glad you asked that because there is. There is an answer, and it, it pertains to vantage point. You know, a couple years ago, uh, a couple years ago, my, my dad and I, we went to Israel, traveled to Israel together. We had a great trip. And at the end of the trip, we went to uh, Tel Aviv, uh, to, that's where we were going to catch our plane. But we kind of misjudged the time. We ended up in Tel Aviv like, like eight hours before our flight. So we had 
we just walked. We walked along the ocean. Oh, there's me in Tel Aviv. Beautiful uh, oceanside community there. And uh, we walked around. And as we were walking around, we came upon this sign outside of a restaurant. Look at this sign. It says, Agadir, it's the name of the restaurant. One of the 10 best burgers in the world. Now, I wasn't even hungry. It wasn't even lunchtime. But I saw that sign and said, Dad, I mean, we're going to eat here, right? We got, we got to try this. And here's the thing. If you have a brain like, if you're an analytical person like me, this is the first thing you think of. Why would you say one of the 10 best? If you were the seventh best burger in the world, why, wouldn't you, why would you include your burger on a list that also includes three inferior hamburgers to yours? Right? If yours was the third best hamburger in the world, why wouldn't you just say, Ours is better, except for two hamburgers on the whole planet. Why would you include it with these? So I said, I got to find out. I got, I got to find. I was asking all these questions, right? I had all these questions, and I sat down, and the, the waiter came out, and I said, "What is your best hamburger? I gotta, I gotta try it, right? I gotta, I gotta try it." See, oftentimes we struggle in these places the most. These these difficult answers or these difficult problems because we're just simply asking the wrong question asking the wrong question. The right question is, the right question is, may I have a hamburger, please? Now check this out. That is one of the 10 best hamburgers in the world. It was good. It was good. You know, we look at the presence of our scars. We look at the presence of suffering and evil in the world, and we ask ourselves this question. What does it say about God? but we're looking through the wrong end of the telescope. When really the right question, after discovering anything about God, is to ask ourselves, what does the nature of God say about our suffering? God's answer to Job's questions was to talk about himself. Now, I'm not just talking about learning more about God, although that's important. I'm into that. I'm big into that. I am. But I know that knowledge puffs up while love builds up. God is not so concerned that we, uh, on whether we know lots of things about him. He's not merely wanting us to add to the ontological furniture in our brains. He, it's not so important that we know a bunch of stuff about him as that we know him. Here's a passage of scripture that always comforts me when, I'm, when I've experienced loss or suffering or pain, and it's Psalms 27, verse 13. It says, I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Wait for what? Wait for what? Wait for God to make everything better? Wait for God to reward me for all of my good works because I'm a good person? Wait for him to make everything right again? To restore something that was lost? Is that what he's promising? Wait on the Lord. Wait for what? I don't know. I don't know. But I trust him. I trust him. Now, while you're waiting, while you are waiting, you might consider that God's world is not a perfect one. He never claimed it was. Remember at the beginning of the book, he says this. He says, he looked at his creation. He says, not this is perfect. He says, this is good. It's a good world. It's a good world. It's beautiful, but it's also wild. It's plentiful, but sometimes dangerous. 
Have you noticed that? This world is sometimes a little dangerous. In God's monologue, he talks about these two beasts, Leviathan and Behemoth. It really captured my attention when I was in high school. And, um, and he describes these two. I mean, they must be mon- almost like dinosaurs or something, fire-breathing, big tail. And he, God asked Job and his friends this question, can you tame these beasts? Can you? Of course, it's you know, rhetorical. He can't. God's world is full of beauty, but also insurmountable problems. Why would that be? Why would there be insurmountable problems in this world? Oh, uh, early this year, do you remember when we had that incredible lightning storm? Do you remember that? Actually, sparked some fires, right? Some big ones. I remember watching this, the lightning storm in the middle of the night from our house up, up there, and um, we were watching out the window, and I, the next morning I, I wrote just this, uh, this little kind of uh, meditation on lightning. Here's what I wrote. It's really short. It says, uh, I just wrote this down for myself. I said, lightning... It's a bolt, of, a bolt of lightning is no wider in diameter than your thumb. Do you know that? It's no bigger than this. But it moves through the air at an astounding 270,000 miles an hour. With temperatures that exceed 30,000 degrees Celsius, lightning burns five times hotter than the surface of the sun. Yeah. With power that can fuse sand into glass, split granite boulders apart, and superheat water into boiling cauldrons. Lightning is one of the greatest natural forces on the planet. However, counting Ben's Fra- Ben Franklin's uh, uh, key and kite experiment 250 years ago, scientific study has shown us that we know very little about how lightning actually works. Lightning and thunder are completely mysterious. Raise your hand if you once thought that thunder is the sound of two clouds rub- rubbing together. Yeah, that's, yeah, right? Yeah. Some of you are just now finding out that it's not. Um, so... The wild, mysterious nature of the universe is just as majestic and breathtaking here on Earth as it is anywhere else. Lightning is a great example of the untamed beauty of creation reflecting the unmatched beauty of its creator. Sometimes when I'm waiting for God, when I'm contemplating a loss or some pain in my life, I I pray something like this, and I would encourage you to do the same. I pray this. Thank you, God, for this lesson. Help me to learn from it. So I only have to experience it once. Let's take a minute right now, and let's, let's together, let's, let's take a minute and think about, I'm going to ask you to do something kind of hard, okay? Because you're my friends, I know you, I, I know you'll, uh, I know you trust me a little bit, so lean into this a little bit. Let's, let's think about a painful memory, some place in your life where you've suffered, something painful that has left some scars and your heart. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to lean in. We're going to embrace it. We're going to let it go. So let's lean in. Think about that thing. That thing that, you've, that caused those scars, that painful memory. Lean into it. Our natural inclination is to shrink back, right? What happens when you stub your toe when you're coming around the corner? You pull your foot back, right? You, we withdraw from pain. That's natural. That's natural. We're going to do something unnatural. We're going to lean into it. Lean into it. Let's wrap our arms around it, just for a moment. Let it inhabit you. Feel it. If you have feelings, feel them. Feel them. Breathe it in. Now open your arms. Let it go. Let it go. 
It served its purpose. Let it go. You learned what you needed to learn from it. Let it go. You carried that thing a long time. It's time to let it go. You know, in all of Job's musings when he's talking with his friends, the thing he mourns the most is, is where he feels like he's lost his connection with God. At the end of the book, God says, my anger burns for your friends, Job. It, it burns for his friends. Why would that be? Why would God's anger burn for his friends? It's not because they said a bunch of wrong things about him. They, they said a lot of good things about him, in fact. They said he's just. They said he's powerful. They said he sits on his throne. Is it because they claimed to have too much knowledge, to be too authoritative? We know that God wants us to believe in him, right? We know that. But it's also true that he wants us to come to him honestly, acknowledging that we don't know everything about him. So I'm going to leave you with this word, uncertainty. Uncertainty. Have you ever wondered why you get seasick? Danny and I went out on a boat a few weeks ago. I was doing really great at first. But that boat was rocking, man. I mean, it was, right? That was and Danny tries to put a positive spin on everything. He's like, man, it's going to get better, you know? It's not that bad. You know, it's not that bad, right? It was, I mean, it was rolling. It was, you know, back and forth. And I was doing pretty good until I looked down at this little knot, and I tried to untie. We were fishing, you know? Try to untie. Have you ever done this? You know, you look, if you're following the horizon line, you're fine. You look down at this little knot, and all of a sudden, it's like, oh, boy. And I chummed the water those, that day, my friends. Why is it that that happens? It's because our feet, our eyes are telling our brain we're on a flat surface, right? But our inner ear is telling our brain another message that we're not. And our brain can't handle the contradiction and it makes us sick. We're physically wired to recoil from uncertainty. But the irony is that it, uncertainty is exactly the place that your brain has to go in order to make any real or lasting changes. Think about the last time you changed your mind on something. I don't mean like your favorite flavor of ice cream. I mean something big. Well, for some of you that might be big. But I'm talking about like a big thing, right? You change your mind on something big. Think about it. When was the last time you did? Mostly we don't, right? We kind of we get our beliefs and our values early on or the things that we, we think we know, and, and then we just live there. We stay there, right? But the thing is, is in, when we change our perspective, in creative thinking, in seeing things differently, it always, all those things begin with a question. It begins with uncertainty. And that is the place that God is drawing you and I to today, uncertainty. So often in that moment of certainty, uncertainty, there's opportunity that comes along with it. And our inclination is to pull away. But today, let's do something different. Let's lean in. Let's embrace it. Let it do what it's supposed to do, and then let it go. Here's how we're going to finish. Let's, do you want to hear Job's response to God? Do you want to hear what Job had to say? This is what he says. After God's monologue, this is how Job responds. He says, Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, Who is this that obscured my plans without knowledge? We read that, right? That's, that's what God said. Job's quoting him back. Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, Listen now, and I will speak, and I will question you, and you shall answer me. 
This is my favorite line of all of scripture right here. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. And if you think that Job is appealing to some kind of self-hatred, that's not what's happening. That word, the English word despise is, is a translation of the Hebrew word imos, which means to retract, to disappear. I pull back, I shrink down. John the Baptist spoke of this when he said, I must decrease so that he can increase, right? Less of us, more of him. Before you ever suffered, you may have heard about God, right? You may have heard about him. You knew a thing or two before you suffered, before you experienced pain, before you experienced loss, before you were hurt or battered or bruised, before you were ripped off. You'd heard of God, right? Before you were defeated or betrayed or rejected before the storms of life blew through. Yeah, maybe before all that, you'd heard about God. But now your eyes have seen him. When you turn, you look back. He was there, wasn't he? He was there. And now your eyes have seen him. Now you know who's who. He wastes nothing. And that is worth everything. We hope this message encouraged you to take the next steps in your relationship with God. The cool thing is that you don't have to do it alone. There are a lot of ways you can get connected here at Hope. Not only do we want you to feel at home at Hope, we'd love to help you find a home. Please check out discoverhope.church and click connect or just email us at info at discoverhope.church. Lastly, we give everything we can away for free and rely 100% on volunteers and donations to support this ministry. If you'd like to give to the Mission of Hope Church, you can select the Give option on our website or text any amount to 831 800 Thanks again for tuning in.